You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Happy holidays, and thank you for listening to Let's Talk Trio. I hope you're enjoying time off with friends and family. It's a very special time of the year. I just want to show my appreciation and again show my thanks to the audience for continuing to support this podcast. Thank you so much for downloading, for streaming, for sharing. Um, every little bit helps, so whatever you can do to share this podcast, to encourage others, is greatly appreciated. And on another note as well, if you really, really want to show your support to this podcast, one, download the Podbean app, two, search for Let's Talk Trio within the app, and subscribe to get the latest episodes of Let's Talk Trio. In this episode, we have the panelists for the First Generation Conversation with Andrea Reeve, Marilyn Thayer, Dr. Oscar Felix, and Dr. Paul Thayer. This conversation was great to join. I was honored to be part of it. We were guests as a podcast to record and upload this conversation for everyone to listen to. I think it was a very important conversation to have, and the uh, audience that we have, they were all amazing. Thank you all very much for showing up and for being there. That was my very first live podcast recording of an audience and having a panelist there so that was a great experience uh shout out to john russell for being uh, the audio specialist for this episode and for providing the recording equipment and for uh, again making sure the levels were good and that we had the recording up and running uh, john russell again thank you so much for collaborating with me uh for that particular episode in this uh, episode again we are talking about first generation students uh that is the main theme going into all of this is supporting first-generation students, what are institutions doing to support that, and um, how uh, can we as, as taxpayers and contributors to education, how can we best support first-generation students who do not have that support, may not have the advantages of others, and to really help them uh, excel and exceed. So uh, I'm just very happy to have uh, the panelists uh, talk about those experiences, and again, I'm just very happy to be part of the overall experience for the first generation conversation. Uh, I didn't get to contribute much only because I was sitting back and listening to the conversation take place. You got to remember, it's many years of experience sitting at the table talking about first generation and what that means to them and um, how that uh, term was coined initially by the trio programs. So again, you'll get to listen to these panelists and it's going to just be an amazing conversation. And yeah, so... Again, you can send me your feedback uh, at juanrivas583 at yahoo.com or you can contact me to get featured on Let's Talk Trio if you want to sit down with me to be interviewed and discuss your journey as a trio student or as as a trio professional or both. uh, We can certainly do that. I am also excited to announce that our latest episode with Dr. Oscar Felix, that interview, went viral. We are hitting about 400 people who streamed or downloaded the episode. Um, We're getting people from all across the United States listening to this interview, loving the work that we're doing here at the podcast for Let's Talk Trio. And uh, hopefully that generates more attention. From what I've heard, the Council of Opportunity and Education is really liking what the podcast is doing. So my goal is to really just get this thing to go viral and uh, people subscribing to Podbean and subscribing to our podcast in particular. hope you enjoy the interview and I'll see you at the end.
Good. Well, thanks everybody for being here. Welcome to uh, our conversation about first gen at CSU, past, present, and future. And we're so delighted to have an all-star panel. Oh my goodness, we have some good friends here who have done a lot of good work. So, and also uh, a shout out to Juan Rivas, who is the host of Let's Talk Trio podcast. Thank you for, for this collaboration. Thank you, Juan. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being here. Uh, yeah. It's an honor and I look forward to the conversation. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Actually, I just want to say that I enjoyed our conversation last week. and when you It was were... a fun conversation, yeah. yeah. Uh, getting yeah. to know you and getting to know your history, kind of your superhero origin story, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed <laughs> listening to... Now, you have to tell the audience uh, yeah. kind of the hook of your, of your episode because yeah. I felt like it, it, it fit really well. well with the com- you, you're a really good in- interviewer because you allow me to just, just talk about my story, so, which is... Uh, growing up in Mexico, I, I was nine or ten, and uh, I was the youngest, so we were uh, the oldest. Alfredo was going off to college, and we that morning when was we were gonna take him to the bus depot, I wake up to the smell of shredded beef brewing, and homemade flour tortillas, and I'm thinking, all right, after we drop off our, my brother, we're gonna come back and eat all that food. Well. When we get to the bus depot, my mom just gives him all this food as he goes to college. And I'm thinking, well, well, goodness, I want to go to college too then. <laughs> so my hook for me to go to college is shredded beef burritos. Which, <laughs> which by the way, and uh, shredded beef, and uh, for, for Puerto Rico, they call it uh, ropa vieja, mm-hmm. which is like shredded uh, clothing. And it, uh, so it's just this wonderfully uh, tasty uh, dish. Oh, it's savory. Yeah, oh, it's, so it's, good. Very good. Yeah. it's very good. It's very good. Well, good. Well, that's my story, and uh, now I want to introduce the panel, and uh, maybe they can share a little bit about their story. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks. Well, first we have um, Andrea Reeve. Hi, Andy. Hi, Oscar. <laughs> People also call me Andy, so you'll hear him refer to me as Andy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andrea is a retired trio director, uh, but works all the time now. <laughs> as a grant writer, as a reviewer, and also as a trainer, trainer all over the U.S. and the world, including Palau and Guam. So, so I li- love hearing about your stories about how you're flying on United to uh, all, all over Asia. Uh, Andrea earned her bachelor degree from Berkeley and master's program, uh, master's from the University of Wyoming. Uh, she worked as a teacher, uh, teacher cork in Kentucky in middle school and high school teacher in remote areas of Alaska. And you did that during the 70s, right? Um, yeah. And then before working at CSU, Andrea worked for the Council for Opportunity and Education. So welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to start by telling a story also. Uh, but first, I have to make a correction, because people in Bowling Green will be mad. My master's degree is from Western Kentucky University. Oh, OK, OK. Uh, I was uh, uh, yeah yeah edit that, 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 okay. that one out okay. <laughs> where I was uh, teaching in what was then one of the national service organizations teacher corps it used to be teacher corps Peace Corps and Vista and I taught for several years in uh, Appalachia in uh, Southern Kentucky all right so my story actually is a Berkeley story and that is I'm a first generation college student and my parents kind of just drove me from Los Angeles where we lived and dropped me off at school and said, bye, good luck, 
<laughs> that was about it. And let me tell you, this is 1963. They had no parent orientation programs. They had no student orientation programs. There was nothing to orient you or prepare you for the life of college. My father was still shaking his head that I had chosen Berkeley over UCLA because if I had gone to UCLA, I could live at home and take the bus to school every day and save all that money. Yeah. Uh, my father was a, was a salesman at Sears, so we, we were low income, considered low income, but there were no Pell Grants in those days. So I had a small scholarship and that actually allowed me to pay for my tuition, which was $90 a quarter at Berkeley in 1963. Uh, uh, books and part of actually my room and board was covered also by that small scholarship. But what I want to say is that I owe everything to my roommate, Nancy Rubin. Nancy's brother, sister, mother, and father had all gone to Berkeley. They had her mother and her sister had all lived in Stern Hall. And so she knew every tradition. She knew everything we should do and when we should do it. And she passed that on to me. It made all the difference. I knew that I had to wake up early one day and go stand in line with you. Some of you may remember this, Paul, maybe, with computer cards in order to get in we my have classes. Computers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, but you had to collect these cards in order to get into a class, and you had to stand in line to register for everything. And Nancy knew how to do that. She knew who was the best person to take for my freshman English. And she also knew the other engagement kinds of things. She knew every word to every Berkeley song. She knew that on the first night we should climb to the big sea and drink beer with everybody else. She <laughs> knew all the traditions, and I really owe uh, yeah. my ability to engage that first year with Nancy Rubin. Yeah. Nancy, if you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> shout out to you. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. Thanks, Thanks Andrea. Uh, next we have Marilyn Thayer, uh, also a retired trio director and also working uh, hard uh, still. Uh, Marilyn is consulting for CSU and uh, as well for national and regional associations. Uh, Marilyn graduated from the University of Hawaii and received her master's from Colorado State University. Uh, Marilyn oversaw community-focused programs in North Fort Collins before becoming director of TRIO AAC. Welcome, Marilyn. Welcome, thank you, and thank you for being here. Um, my story as a first-generation college student um, is very similar in, in terms of really not knowing what I was doing. Uh, I was one of five children growing up in Hawaii. Um, my father dropped out of school when he was in sixth grade. He came from the plantation and he, had, he was expected to help contribute to the household. So um, he went back to school eventually and got his GED. My mother um, loved learning and she would have loved to have gone to college. She was a very good student and when she graduated from high school, she was told that women don't go to college. and. She also lost her father when she was um, 13, and so her expectation of the family was, after you graduate from high school, you stay home and you help your mother. And so education was always something very important in our family, and um, I had a very high-achieving brother who, um, his footsteps were very hard to follow. Um, he went straight through uh, his bachelor's and then his master's and his PhD followed by my brother just above me that took, I think, about 12 years to get his bachelor's. He, he loved, we grew up in Hawaii, he loved surfing, and so he took maybe one or two <laughs> classes at a time. So those were my role models. <laughs> I was kind of in between that, and, and um, I, I loved learning as well. Um, I always knew I wanted to go to college and, and get a bachelor's. 
But one of my memories as um, a challenge uh, was kind of um, kind of scary for me. I, I, I was uh, I came from an all-girl Catholic school too, so that's a story in itself. But um, I remember I, I was in a philosophy class and. Um, I didn't know why I took philosophy other than, oh, maybe this would be something interesting and maybe it would help my GPA. And uh, I mean, yeah, GPA. And uh, so um, I remember turning in a paper and I struggled writing the paper because I didn't even understand the question and what we were supposed to write about. And at the end of the class, the professor said, um, Marilyn, and at that time I was Marilyn Lee, Marilyn Lee, I wanna see you after class. And I said, oh my gosh. I blew it, you know, I, I probably failed writing the paper and, um, you know, why is this professor calling me to his office and you only go see your professor if you're in trouble. Well, it turns out when I saw the professor, he thought very highly of my paper. He said mm -hmm. it was very brilliant and he said, and, you know, what degree are you pursuing? Are, do you want, have you ever considered philosophy? And I said, absolutely not, I'm hoping to get into <laughs> education, but it was kind of my first um, encounter with how much I didn't know about being a first-generation student and how valuable professors really can be. Of course, it was after the fact that um, I understood that he was interested in me and, and my success there um, at the university. But at that time, I was just so scared to death even to be called to his office. Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you. Uh, next, we have uh, Paul Thayer, uh, retired trio director and associate VP for student success, uh, and also working quite a bit as well uh, as a trainer, consultant, speaker around the world, and uh, and also Nebraska, which is your next gig, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul received his bachelor's from Williams College and master's in public administration and PhD from CU Denver. Uh, Paul established the Center for Educational Access and Outreach. You appreciate that I called it that, Paul? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is now called the Access Center, which is a uh, much shorter title, but, but Paul didn't approve. The first, thing, the first thing after I left, within 24 hours, they changed the name to something they actually liked and, and you could pronounce. Uh, and uh, Paul also established uh, key communities and had a major responsibility for CSU's student success initiatives. Welcome, Paul. Oh, great to be here, and thanks for coming. And, and by the way, there, it's a long room, so feel free to come up closer, because it, it may be hard to hear. I know my voice isn't easy to hear. So, so thinking about first-generationness, um, I, I grew up in uh, Rochester, New York, my hometown. My family was working desperately to move towards the middle class. Um, I ended up going to uh, uh, a small private liberal arts institution during a time when they decided they were going to experiment with letting in uh, what we used to call the riffraff. <laughs> uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, likewise, my parents dropped me off and hightailed it. And uh, I remember walking in, into my room and seeing this pair of, of hand-tooled, beautiful, beautiful leather boots that cost more than I had for the rest of the semester. And then meeting my roommate and, and uh, sharing stories. And uh, I said, where are you from? Texas? Where? Ball County. Said, my daddy owns Ball County. <laughs> <laughs> and that describes a lot about how well I fit in there at the university. Um, I remember my first, my first class was philosophy. And, uh, and I was so excited to perform. And I studied and studied. I read and read and read, went into the class. 
And within 10 minutes, I realized I had no idea what was going on. I had never heard the vocabulary that people were using. It was entirely, it was, it was so far out of my world. And I remember, I'm, I'm sure, I hope I was sitting here like this, but in my head, I was shriveling into this tiny little secret being on my chair and I, I literally spent the next four years being as invisible as possible, not wishing to display how little I knew about language, about higher education, or anything that was connected to that. Well, I, I've ended up uh, spending the rest of my life working with lots with first-generation students, teaching public school in inner-city Rochester, uh, doing community, organiza community organizing work, uh, working on a reservation, um, eventually uh, working in the sugar mills, doing other things, eventually out here in Colorado, eventually working here at CSU and spending 40 years with things that I really love. And one of the things that I have most love is, has been working with first generation students. So pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Before we get to the questions, I just want to say I'm looking out the window of the student center and it reminds me of uh, just a month ago, right, Juan, when we were oh, yeah. out there. It was really cold, yeah. I yeah. remember there was like a two-hour conversation with students. Yes. Uh, talking yeah. to all. Uh, I think by the end, my hands were freezing. <laughs> uh, my hair yeah. had frozen in place. Yeah. And, uh, it was yeah. longer then. Yeah. It, was, it was longer hair. Yeah, we were uh, celebrating National uh, First Generation Day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so what the intent is, is if anybody wanted one of these wonderful T-shirts, they would first share the story on your podcast, yeah, and yeah. Uh, which I hear, which I hear is uh, your biggest hit, right? That so. is the most listened to podcast episode so far. Uh, yeah. It has about 300, 400 listeners yeah. that have downloaded and or streamed the episode. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was really cool. So really quickly, uh, where where can folks find your podcast and, and so tell they, us a little bit more about yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So they can find the podcast at uh, my first name last name so Juan Rivas com. So that's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Uh, and you'll have access to, I think I have 12 episodes of Let's Talk Trio at the moment. So yeah. you can listen to all 12 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. You can binge listen. Yeah. Oh, binge listen. Yeah. That's right. Especially that's right. those one hour episodes. Great. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Juan. All right. So I'm going to start with a, a statement that uh, we came up with and then throw out the, the first questions to, to the panel. So, um, what underlies our discussion today? Uh, first generation is a concept that offers new insight and opportunity for institutional and individual action. CSU has been among the institutional leaders in developing and forwarding policies and practices with respect to first generation, and has become an element in our understanding of our land-ground mission. As we prepare to enter the fifth decade since first generation was embedded in the HEA Act of 1980, it's important to reinforce CSU's legacy with first generation and take advantage of the insights and opportunity it offers. So with that, I'd like to throw out the first questions, and um, which is, how did first generation concept arise, and what connection did CSU have with this development? Um, the, I would start with the, trio, the creation of the TRIO programs. Just real quickly, going back to 1964, the Education, the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, the Higher Education Act of 1965, and thereafter, in those years, were, um, that was really the creation of what were called the TRIO programs. Uh, TRIO programs 
doesn't stand for anything. There, at one time there were three, now there are five, but the three stuck with TRIO. And the idea behind those programs were that there were students who were disadvantaged, that was the language in the law, and we needed to have ways of in, in increasing the rate at which those students engaged in higher education and attain a higher education degree. That was the idea behind TRIO programs. So the programs include Upward Bound and Talent Search, Educational Opportunity Centers, or EOC as they're called, the Student Support Services programs here on campus called the Academic Advancement Center, and the Ronald McNair Post-Baccalaureate Achievement Program. Um, so that's 1965 era. Well, jumping ahead, during that, during quite a few years, those programs were in kind of a plantation style of administration. So the program officers regionally based for the federal government were um, overseeing the programs in various autocratic and arbitrary ways. So very wisely, the people who worked in those programs began to organize and associate if that weren't true, you wouldn't hear of TRIO programs today. But the people did, at some great cost, that's a whole other story, did begin to associate and form organizations, forming state organization, regional organizations, national organizations. Our regional association here is called ASPIRE. The national association is called the Council for Opportunity in Education right now. It used to have a different name. So what does this have to do with first generation? Um, that was not a term during all this period that I've been describing, right up till 1980. So as we approached 1980, there was going to be another reauthorization of the Higher Education Act of 1965. And in preparation for that, since we had now organized and wanted to take some control over our destiny, we began talking with one another and saying, well, what should change in the law when the, when the law is reauthorized? Well, one of the things we were really dissatisfied was eligibility criteria. Who would participate? The language of, for eligibility in those days was you had to be rurally isolated or culturally disadvantaged. I don't know what is quite dis disadvantageous about culture, but you can see why there were problems with that. And we began to think, what, what would, do we wish we could um, make the eligibility? Well, there was somebody up in Wyoming, yeah. up where yeah. Andy and in fact, spent some I, time. My first uh, supervisor <laughs> at uh, the University of Wyoming, where I used to work with Upward Bound and Talent Search, Uji Adachi. Uji Adachi. So um, I was at that time involved with our association. Uh, this was a long time ago, 1979, going on 1980. And, uh, as, and Fuji did something pretty darn brilliant. He looked at data and said, you know, if we put together two things, one is family income and the lower end of family income, and if we put that together with one other thing, and this was brand new, absolutely novel, parent family, parent education background, if we put those two together, it, that turns out to describe not only the kinds of students that we were already serving, but a whole lot of other students besides. And so we debated that. We ended up putting it in the legislation. You know, how does legislation get written? In this case, um, the night before the meeting of the Ed Labor Committee, 
uh, Bill Ford's committee, Bill Ford from Michigan, it was a late, late night where our representatives were sitting on the living room floor of the staffers for that committee with papers all around writing notes. And in the end, they said, well, let's call this first generation. Let's say that this is students who would be in the first generation of their family to attend and achieve a degree. And as we finally defined it, it was a person neither of whose parents has a bachelor's degree. So we got that in the legislation. It was a miracle <laughs> and it was wonderful for a whole lot of reasons. And, and I, would, I would cite three. The first one is that we were able to broaden and rationalize the definition. Broadening, more people were eligible than previously. And politically, that was a much bigger constituency. So we were able to thrive and survive because we had a broader constituency. Broadening, but also rationalizing. Before, there was not a good reason to justify why we were, we were saying somebody could participate and somebody would not. Now it made sense. We had data that said, this describes a group who are the least likely to participate and attain a bachelor's degree. Um, so that was one thing. A second thing was it was introducing this new concept into the national discussion, a brand new idea. We had no idea that it would become so well known. If we say first generation today, we all understand it. It's a part of higher education parlance. But back in those days, it was not. So it, was, it added to the national understanding about equity. And the last was personally a revelation. And I'll take myself. My experience of being a first generation student was described by these kinds of things. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know how to talk. Um, I, I was, um, it, uh, I told you I was trying to be invisible. I wanted no one to know where I came from and display myself through my language. It was all about uh, the things that I was doing on the weekend, which is washes, washing dishes and stringing fences while everyone off, else was going off to New York City. Those were my experiences of being a first generation student. It was all about the things in, that made me feel less than my compatriots there at the institution. Well, years later, giving that a name, language is so darn powerful. Suddenly it had a name. This experience was suddenly reputable. It had a description. And it was about just simply a different experience, not a lesser experience, not a deficient experience. It was, it was just a different experience. And there were reasons why I had those, those experiences. There were reasons why I didn't know what was going on. So suddenly I had a way to manage that and understand it in a way that didn't threaten my ego. And having that language allowed for research to happen, to investigate the, yeah, yeah. I think about the students that come to campus and have that kind of dissonance, right? They, they, they feel disconnected and they feel uh, that upon entry, it's, I don't know the campus that well. I don't know the resources all that well. I know that was my, my experience when somebody told me, oh, you're a first generation. I was like, oh, that, that kind of feels what I'm feeling is this, I'm entering a foreign land and I'm be trying to become familiar with it, trying to navigate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned research, Oscar, and uh, research began around this new term of first generation. 
And um, so people wanted to understand why it is that students are less successful if they have that background. So all the original research for decades has been around what students can't do. It's been research around the fact that uh, first-generation students are less likely to complete high school, less likely to apply for college, less likely to go to college, less likely to make it past the first year, less likely to graduate. If they graduate, less likely to go on for a master's degree. It was all about not having mentors, not having role models in the community. It was everything that students didn't have and weren't able to do. What's exciting about research that's beginning to emerge these days is now we're beginning to talk about all the assets that first-generation students bring. The idea that they are highly resilient, exceptionally persistent, the idea that they are um, authors of their own story. Well, while my people that, were, that I went to school with were living out a story that their parents had written for them long ago, first-generation students are writing their own story along the way and living that new story. It's about um, the inclination to service and making the world a better place, making one's community a better place, all those assets that students bring and more. I think the most recent research, and I'll stop in a sec, but the recent research I think is even more exciting because it's, it's taking all those assets and it's also talking about the ways that institutions unintentionally, entirely unintentionally, um, tend to, the experience at institutions tends, tend to take students' initial di uh, disadvantages and magnify them in various ways, not intentionally, but structurally and persistently. And we're able, and by identifying the dimensions of that, another session we can talk about what all those are because they're fascinating, but by identifying those, we can begin to treat them. We can act differently. We can create different structures that not only serve first-generation students, but the great thing is every time we do that, we improve education for everyone at the institution. Um, so those are some of the things that I think are, are going on. And, uh, uh, and I better stop there. <laughs> okay, no, so you're fine, you're fine. Uh, Andrew, you not only worked in a, the TRIO programs in, in the University of Wyoming, but you also worked at the national office. I and did. you had the, this national perspective, <laughs> and, and you ran the clearinghouse that, that had a lot of uh, research-based uh, um, articles and such. So what's your So take? sure, that was, uh, I think it was probably one of the first attempts at having some sort of a clearinghouse uh, on low-income and first-generation students. and. Uh, I was housed in the Pell Institute mm -hmm. for the study of opportunity in higher education. It still exists, but I think it was one of the first national institutes or organizations to say, you know, research and discussion about both effective practices but also data around low-income and first-generation students mm -hmm. is important. And uh, all of that was, was started actually in 1996 yeah. right. at COE. Uh, and so I wanted to say Paul was talking a little bit about some of it being researched more about some of the deficits, but, but I think it's important to honor and recognize that people like Tom Mortensen, who dedicated most of his later life, he had somebody who'd worked for uh, ETS, to collecting data around low-income first-generation students. And uh, I, think, I think we need to have the data to know how people are performing. I mean, I think there are two levels, but I think understanding the levels of performance is important because people still believe in many cases 
that there's no difference. That, you know, given mm -hmm. the opportunity and the access to higher education, that students mm -hmm. are going to just magically transition and magically persist and magically graduate. Mm -hmm. And so we still know that there are definitely differences in achievement that occur. And so I, I have to give credit to someone like Tom, who really dedicated the collection of data around specific populations. If you look at the National Center for Education Statistics, which is the Department of Education statistical data collection area, uh, if you look at that 25 years ago, there was nothing about first generation, nothing about low income students. Mm -hmm. The assumption was that students entered as freshmen and that everything was equal in mm -hmm. terms of tracking and looking at graduation for those students. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those were, were important movements. And mm -hmm. just the fact that people would even begin to consider doing research mm -hmm. around low income and or first generation mm -hmm. students was something new. If you look at educational literature and research about effective practices, that that was not a topic that was covered before the 1990s. Right, right. So. Yeah. So, so it began with research and data and that informed the creation of the terms, but it didn't catch on, right? Because even at, at Colorado State, when we start using it to determine who gets what services and development programs, it still was very uh, not widely used nationwide. Here at CSU, I think it was really just a little something that only TRIO knew about because yeah. that was part of the law and regulation. Mm -hmm. But what changed was 1983, beginning in 1983, um, see if I can tell this story quickly. There was a group of us who began looking at scholarships at CSU and where institutional scholarships were awarded. We looked at several years of data and we discovered that there had not been one single person of color ever awarded one of those institutional scholarships. Now the institution would say, well, it's totally equitable. We just go down the list of ACT scores and cut it off when we'd run out of money. But the effect was there had never been a person of color ever awarded. So we went about trying to figure out how we could create something more equitable. As we began looking at that and that and our efforts got a little attention, suddenly we heard from the Attorney General of the State of Colorado <laughs> saying, um, you know, you may not use race and ethnicity in any way as a criterion. Um, so um, we heard pretty directly that our efforts were being recognized. <laughs> 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 so we began having a different conversation and we, uh, we began to have a conversation with some members of the Board of Governors, then called the State Board of Agriculture, about a different kind of scholarship that would have a couple of different characteristics. One is we could use the TRIO definition of first generation and combined with income, family income, uh, and put those together as two of the primary characteristics for eligibility. The other thing we, we thought about was what things that we had learned from TRIO. TRIO, as it had, had, is the programs had evolved, recognized that you can't just say, okay, here's some information, here's some opportunity, here you are in college. That doesn't work. What we needed was a whole structure for altering the experience of students when they came to institutions like Colorado State University. And we knew that money was really important. In fact, it was necessary, but it was not sufficient. So we needed to combine financial aid awards with structured uh, means of support, monitoring, mentoring, connection with resources, building community, putting those two things together 
So we used that model from TRIO to build what became known as the First Generation Award. We were the first institution in the country to build a scholarship or any policy that we knew of around that idea of first generation. So suddenly, first generation went from being a secret <laughs> in yeah. TRIO yeah. to being something that was relevant to university policy. I want to bring in uh, Marilyn into the conversation, and, and Marilyn, you, you've done some amazing work with uh, with students. Uh, and and uh, so, what do we know about first-gen students at CSU? You know, um, I love the research that Paul and Andrea talked about, and and I think one of the opportunities and really gifts that I've had as um, being involved with the Trio SSS program here is building the relationships with our students and, and hearing their stories. And I think that we need to honor their voices. And, and I, mm -hmm. when I was preparing my thoughts for this um, podcast, I was thinking about what do we hear most often from our students? What are they, are they saying as first generation students? And I wanted to share some of those comments mm -hmm. with you too, because yeah. I think it also resonates with yeah. some of our experiences that we've had as first generation college students yeah. ourselves. But we hear that our students often say, I'm not sure that I belong here. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if I have what it takes to succeed here. I did well in high school, but I really don't feel like I'm adequately prepared mm -hmm. to succeed here at CSU. I don't know where to go to help. CSU is so overwhelming. And I feel bad that I had to leave my family back at home to be here and that I can no longer support my family. So those are some of the mm -hmm. themes that I hear and I know our staff at the AAC continue to hear too. And, and I think it really, um, underlies some of the deeper issues and challenges of our students. And that is that um, they're expected to perform when they're here, but with very limited understanding and knowledge of what these expectations are. They also, like Paul said, and I think Andrea and, and all of us have said as first generation students is, often we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And because of that challenge, we don't know how to ask the questions that really will get us the information that will help us. And so these kinds of um, lessons that we learn, right. we, we have learned, really helps us understand that, you know, our, our students are like Paul said, they want to remain invisible. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want you to know that they don't know. They don't want you to, fe they don't want to feel like they are embarrassed or, or, or blamed or less than. Um, that's not a good place for them to be. And, and I want to go back to um, what all of us, all of you have been saying too, is there is that deficit model. I think we are very familiar with how underprepared our students are, or they lack this and they lack that. At the same time, we really need to honor and acknowledge and get to know what are our assets, what are the strengths of our students. And if we truly are going to support them, and really truly gonna serve them well, we need to remember that and help them also recognize mm -hmm. what their strengths and assets right. are. Right. And that all of our students, including our first generation students, have such great potential and such great promise and they really belong here. Right, right. And, and even though the, the students may wanna be left alone or don't wanna be engaged, we know from experience and research that it, they benefit greatly from intentional programming, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Right. So, so even they, they might they might say, "Leave us alone." We know that's not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, one of the things that we are currently doing, we, we as you, many of you know, we do have a first generation university initiative. And one of the things that we've been working on uh, that we just rolled out, gee, about uh, eight weeks ago, perhaps, is a redesign website. And uh, so I want to touch upon what you said, Marilyn, is that in developing the, the tone and the tenor for this website, we had a lot of conversations about what message we wanted to send, about how do we want to describe, how do we want to celebrate our first-gen students, and we want for sure, we did not want to use deficit language, right? Everything. So, so I think the the committee did a fine job in coming up with the with the right language to to talk about and describe our first gen students. So, how important is that in our work to language and how we describe and work with our students? I wanted to throw something in just about research because I I do want to give recognition to Paul Thayer. Mm -hmm. When I worked at the National Trail Clearinghouse, I would commissioned some short papers. And Paul did a fabulous paper for us uh, on first-generation students. And people still continue to use that in their dissertations, and people cite that all the time. So thanks, Paul, for that research. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> but I did want to say one of the things about language that's so important, I think, is that we, first-generation is one of many identities that students have. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it does, as Paul was saying, it helps people name some of those experiences that you didn't know you would have. Really, my first generation experiences, I had no name for it until 40 years later. And I could go, oh yeah, you know, I was one of those students who sort of made my way through only because I had a guide. And to me, that guide was similar to maybe something that SSS might do, mm -hmm. right? It would structure things for me along the way. So I think that, that the language that we use is really important. Mm -hmm. And Paul, I think you had some great ideas about the importance of language. Mm -hmm. um, if you could maybe elaborate on some of that. If, and identity. Let, let me wonder, well, I'm trying to remember what that might be. <laughs> about identity, just about, about identity. identities, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's so important in all our conversations that we're, we're clear about the fact that first generation is not a replacement or a substitute for any other identity. It's not intended to be the primary identity of, of any particular person, but it does, it is one of the identities that is, can be very important along with others. Race and ethnicity are clearly important factors um, in the campus environment. Gender is obviously an important issue. Um, by the way, you know, one of the, what that also raises, though, is, is whether first generation is all that important. And that's an interesting thing. Well, numerically it's important because literally one out of every four students here at CSU is first generation. We don't know how many faculty are first generation. We know it's a lot, and mm -hmm. we're in, in touch with many of them. But one of, out of every four students are. And when any, when any of us know that, when we're teaching a class, when we're interacting with a group, when we're meeting with a student, knowing that there's a one in four chance that a student is first generation can make an important difference in how we approach things. And acknowledging the honor of that uh, experience of starting a class by saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm so pleased that I'm in this environment where one out of four of us is a pioneer for education in their family. You know, giving it honor, giving it acknowledgement, mm -hmm. along with the 
other diverse, the rest of the diversity that exists in our classroom, uh, that we have people from various races and ethnicities and so on and so on. So giving that acknowledgement right from the beginning, I think, is really important. Think of numbers again. One in four is first generation. The other thing that is really interesting, we've done regression analyses to look at the place of first generation alongside other characteristics. And when we control for, by, when we control statistically for all the demographic um, characteristics along with, so race, ethnicity, gender, residency, um, we've looked at income, we've looked at index. When we put all of those into the formula, so we're controlling for those things, and we say, well, at the end of that, is first generation important? And it turns out it's hugely important, hugely important. It turns out to be one of the most salient features in student success. Stated negatively, it's associated with a 38% lower likelihood of being retained to the second year. It's uh, um, it's associated with 30% uh, lower likelihood of graduating within six years. So that's when we're looking at um, everything being equal, all things being equal, except one person is first generation, another person is continuing generation. Those are the differences. So statistically, we begin to recognize, and by the way, that's CSU data, that's not na national data. So we recognize that the first generation experience is important in qualitative ways, but it's also really closely associated with an important factors that we could begin to treat in terms of retention and, and graduation. Thank you. I, I think that's really important to note yeah. because yeah. Uh, th there was a research study where they have a panel of uh, presenters. Well, they had, actually they prompt them, but uh, so they have a panel of students who are first generation and students who are not first generation and they pose some questions, as Marilyn knows this study. And, and one of the questions they might say is, what happens if you feel like you're not doing well in the class? The not first generation student says, I call my mother and she tells me what to do. <laughs> she sends me to tutoring, she gives me the resources, right? They pay for tutoring. Uh, they tell me to go talk to my instructor. What do you do if you're not, if you are a first generation student? The student says, I don't know. I have to find some other resource mm -hmm. on campus or some mm -hmm. other way to get that information. So that's always struck me as important that students who are not first generation arrive at a campus knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, Ward Siegel says it's, uh, for them, it's like another step you go. Elementary, middle school, middle school, <laughs> high school, high school, college. It is not a disjuncture in any way. But we know that for first generation students, this is definitely a disjuncture. It's a whole new experience. And we've heard so many stories from students just not even knowing the language. And that can be a big difference. You go to class, they talk about the syllabus, they talk about the learning platform, uh, they talk about uh, your first paper, and you have no idea what they're doing. It's like a foreign language that's being spoken to you. So I think that really is important. There are differences, and those differences do make a difference in students' transition and completion. Yeah. Yeah. So we know about the, the gap of achievement by first-gen students. Uh, we also know, or should know, about who the future students will be coming to Colorado State University. And if you would attend a session on demographics about who are the seniors, uh, high school seniors, they're gonna be more and more students of color and first-gen students. So that, to me, would sound a lot of alarms about how do we go about still being a relevant college uh, land-grant university, right? How are we gonna do that? 
and be able to serve all first-gen students who come through our doors. Uh, I am very excited uh, that College State University provides a lot of leadership in what to do, what are the programming. And another one of the things that uh, Paul and Marilyn, that right now you are promoting a lot is what happens the first four weeks, right? How that is so consequential to the student's experience. And if we're going to make a difference, how we need to do uh, a lot of things at the beginning. And I wonder, Marilyn, if you can talk a little bit about what that means and what we can do. Okay, oh, sure, love to. Um, we know our students oftentimes will not take the initiative um, to reach out and ask for help. You know, they're embarrassed. They don't want you, you to know that they don't know that they need the help. And so I think that the data from the first, uh, first four weeks really um, was a catalyst for us in how we started to look at what do our programs and services look like in terms of that first month that we work with our students. And so with that first four weeks kind of a time frame, we set up different policies. With our students who work with their retention specialists and they're like mentors or advisors, we say within the first four weeks at least, you have to have met with your retention specialist. If you are a new student in our program, and, and we're a program that works with a very diverse population. We have students who are freshmen, we have students who are transfer students, we have continuing students, we have students who are non-traditional age, we have veterans. But for those students, because they still are learning about how to navigate and all the policies and all the terminology and language that uh, we've talked about is, we want them in even sooner. So our policy is within the first two weeks, you need to see your retention specialist. If you are with a GPA, a cumulative GPA of a 2.2 or lower, of course, if you're on academic probation, we want them in sooner. But if you're at a 2.2, you're still holding on by your teeth. So we want you in within the first two weeks and help them not only connect with their retention specialists, but connect them with the resources that are gonna help them. Help them sign up for tutoring. Don't wait until that first test that you fail, because again, that will be too late. And we let them know what are the, the classes, the courses that are historically difficult, historically challenging. You don't wait if, to fail that first test, you don't wait to fail that class, we'll get you in tutoring right away. So we are more proactive, more intentional. And we think that has been very important in getting our students in. And, Amelia, I think, might have left. She was one of our staff members who was here. Um, you know, they, they were saying how busy they have been in that first uh, month. And intentionally, you know, when I was there and I had my caseload of 60-plus students, is I was seeing student after student after student after student. And even there were students that were coming in before the semester started to say is, I want to sign up for tutoring. <laughs> and, and so they are understanding the value of these resources. And I think that's also one of the unknowns of our first-gen students, too, is they don't know and they don't understand the value of our resources. So it's really important for us to help them understand how that can help them be successful. Um, Marilyn, you and Andrea both have worked with Student Support Services. I know you have some pretty impressive success statistics. Yes. What does that look like? Yeah. You're, and you're serving students who are first-generation mm -hmm. and low-income and with academic need, right? Yes. And academic need means... For the program. Uh, right. Uh, in terms of prior preparedness, mm -hmm. it's something less mm -hmm. than right. median. Right, right. So 
thank you, and I'll, I'll share that with all of you because I think we are very proud of, of, on how well our students are succeeding and believing in themselves mm -hmm. and rewriting their narratives because they um, are starting to really feel that they are capable um, and that they belong here. Our last annual performance report to the Department of Ed, so this was in 2017, we look at persistence and we serve roughly 275 students. That's, that's what we're funded for. 95% persisted that they stayed on the following year. We also look at graduation rate in six years. 73% of our students in that mm -hmm. cohort graduated. They completed mm -hmm. their bachelor's degree. And then I also look at good academic standing. That's another um, objective that we have to measure. 93% of our students earned at least a 2.0, but we know that's not good enough. So we also look at 3.0. And about 50% of our students last year earned a 3.0. And so they are understanding the value of meeting with your retention specialist, the value of accessing the resources, the value of really looking at what kinds of success strategies do I need to know and start practicing, the value of working with their professors, being proactive to meet with their professors and see them as a resource rather than a gatekeeper. And those kinds of things I think have really made a difference for our students. So this really demonstrates that our first generation students are more than capable mm -hmm. and belong here. Yeah. I think that makes such an important point about, about the ways that we create the conditions for learning, for successful learning. And some of the things that I heard in what you said, Marilyn, were creating a structure that, that, that assures that students do the things that we already know are most important. I heard you talking about how explicit you are about explaining the environment and why things, what, what, what this means and why it's important. Um, uh, you talked about the importance of, of having somebody in particular to, which, to whom the student feels accountable. You talked about the ways that you honor students. And those are principles that are certainly present in a very comprehensive way in the program that you and Andrea have, have worked with. But those are important principles that we can all use. It may not be as comprehensive as, your, as the circumstance in which you are, but it is something that we can do in our classes, in our advising, in our work with student groups, and so on. So there's certainly something to be taken away there. You know, uh, one of the things that we did uh, when I, so this is a while back, this is five years ago, six years ago, but we did a study because we'd always leave slots for students who are on academic probation. And we did a couple of studies. The first one was we wanted to know if we had a student on academic probation at what grade point level we could take a student reasonably into our program and in one or two semesters that student would be able to get off of academic probation. So after doing that we sort of determined that well generally we would have to have a student with a 1.5 in order for them in two semesters to get off although uh, it seemed that if they participated in our program and did the things that we wanted them to do their GPAs would go up. And it may not be off of probation, but they would increase their GPA. So the second thing that we did is we took a look at performance of students uh, who we had admitted to the program with a 1.5 GPA or better. And you know, about 75% of those students actually went off mm -hmm. of academic probation within a two semester period. And what was one of the things that we did? We made them sign a contract. We said, yes, we'll take you into our program, but you have to meet weekly 
with what your retention specialists send out. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a big commitment. Mm -hmm. right. It's 15 weeks of meeting, and yeah. Uh, yeah. students committed to that, as well as committing to tutoring beginning week one of class. Mm -hmm. So we know that those kinds of supports can, in fact, to me, uh, it's miraculous that a student can go from a 1.5 to a 2.2, a 2.3, and during that time period. So I think Paul is right that if you structure it, uh, that that we can make a difference in how the students perform. I can make one more point about that, Oscar, and that is that um, where we do those things that are good for first-generation students, where we've been really successful is where we have literally designed around the needs of the students that we're serving, mm -hmm. first-generation, low-income, students of color, veterans, and so on. When we really design around those things, we've been pretty darn successful. And when we do those things well for those students, everyone benefits. Right. Um, and thinking of the key community, for example, first-generation students do really, really well in, in the key community, uh, better than the rest of the university, um, as well as students of color, low-income right. students. And everybody else does too. Everyone benefits um, by using the principles that we know work for first-generation students. So our efforts with first-generation students pay dividends across the board. Yeah. I, I want to make one point, too, when you're speaking of the key communities. And I, I think that's very important because of that feeling and that belief that I'm here on my own, I'm isolated, I have to succeed on my own. It's that sense of community and that sense of belonging that is so important for our first generation students and for them to understand what are the opportunities that they can be become members of communities, whether in key, whether in AAC, whether in mm -hmm. C4E. And it really makes a difference for the students because they need to feel safe somewhere. They need to be able to identify with a program with some kind of a community as well as within the university, within a, a CSU as, as an institution. They have to feel valued and they have to feel important and that they matter. Well, thank you, Marilyn. When, when I introduce each of you, I mention that you are retired and... Uh, <laughs> All three of us are. <laughs> and, and, and you're all really good friends of mine, so it's been been quite lonely for me without you all and uh, as you know I'll also be retiring because I want to play with you all <laughs> join the club okay, yes yeah count down the clock to go out to play in uh, recess so I and and I appreciate you all accepting my invitation to be here uh, it really means a lot I I reckon when I also leave uh, I'm not sure who's gonna invite us back but before we all leave uh, can can each of you talk about what is your wish, what is your vision for Colorado State University regarding first generation? How do we support students? How do we make them be successful? And uh, we can start with Andrew. Well, I, I was here at CSU at a time when we began the first generation faculty initiative and Paul, we were both on that committee. and. I, I still, I, my hope for CSU is that that would be an initiative that would grow. Mm -hmm. Because to me, students, if you look at the time that students spend on campus, the majority of their time they're spent in class and they have more contact with faculty than they do anyone else. And so it just makes sense that we have faculty who acknowledge the presence of mm -hmm. first generation students, right. 
that they start their class by saying, if they were first generation, <laughs> I'm a first generation faculty. Mm -hmm. I understand what yeah. it means to not know the language of the, of the institution and to not feel as though you've been invited into this special community and uh, that you know they, they open up to students mm -hmm. and they invite mm -hmm. them to come in if they don't know what a syllabus is. Uh, <laughs> so I'm hoping that that faculty initiative will continue to grow. Sure, sure, yeah. Thank you, Andrea. I wanted to kind of piggyback on you, Andrew, because I think there's a lot of opportunities for our faculty, whether you are first generation or continuing generation, is your commitment to our students so they can continue their, mm -hmm. continue being successful here and even beyond and, and to look at opportunities. I know at the Academic Advancement Center, um, one a couple things I'm thinking of is we have, and, and Andrew was talking about students on probation, we now have our own academic recovery program called PASS, Pathways to Academic Student Success. It's an eight-week um, seminar. It's a very uh, two hours a day, uh, two hours a session, and it's a real commitment for our students. Mm -hmm. And we have also seen the dramatic um, success that students have when they learn how to do things differently, learn how to learn, and, and learn how to study differently. And uh, we welcome having, especially our first generation faculty, come and talk to our students and share their stories as well, mm -hmm. because narratives are so important. Right. Uh, a second opportunity that I'd like to point out is our graduate school conference that we have every year for TRIO students. And um, again, it's helping our students who have the dream of continuing their educational journey to graduate school to help them understand. And it's, it's even challenging as well being a first generation student in graduate school. Um, Patricia has been on our um, faculty panel before, but having faculty share their stories or helping our students really understand how is um, graduate school different from an undergraduate program? Mm -hmm. um, what are the benefits of going to graduate school? Um, is graduate school ready for you? Those kinds of things we really value and would appreciate any way that you might be able to support our students for their right. continued success. Right. Yeah. So that is one of my hopes. <laughs> Thank you, Marilyn. I think what I would wish for is that we think really hard about how we want to frame the, the idea of first-generation students. Um, one way of thinking about first-generation students is, you know, we've got some students at the institution who are coming with lots of disadvantages and it's an unusual case. One in four of our students is first-generation. They are so vital to who we are at CSU that we really ought to make it a part of our identity to think about the centrality of first-generation students, to think about first-generation students as being a measure of how much we care about the land grant, our land-grant tradition. I think, I think also we ought, to, we ought to be thinking about, um, we ought to be think about preparation issues differently. One way of thinking about preparation issues is to say, uh, gee, you know, we've just got so many students who are coming un un underprepared. A different way of thinking about it is, we're an institution that intentionally wants to be open to attracting students from first generation and other backgrounds. Uh, that's who we are. And if that's true, we know that we are inviting students who have had different levels of opportunity than the traditional students that higher education has always served well. 
if we know that, if we know that we have many of our students and our, we are recruiting and including so many students whose opportunities have been different and often less than other students, then we ought to design for that. And it shouldn't be remedial. It shouldn't be less than. It should be a central function of the campus that we are ready to address head on what we know is the expected differential in, in prior preparation based on differential opportunity. So if we think about it in those ways, I think we do a number of things. One, one is we make first generation students more central to the campus. Another is that we take advantage of our land grant tradition. Another is that we can distinguish ourselves nationally and regionally and statewide by our service to first generation students. The fact that we have been named the best college for first generation student um, I think is really nice. What I think is nicer is that underneath that we really have tried to lead. We have really have tried to take seriously um, what we value about first generation students. And, and lastly, we want to close the gap that exists mm -hmm. in graduation. Um, about a 10 percentage, gap, percentage point gap between the six-year graduation rates of first-generation students versus non-continuing uh, generation students. And that sounds really big challenge, and it is. But thinking about it a different way, if we can cause 11 students, to first-generation students, to graduate who wouldn't have otherwise, that's 1% of that graduation gap. 11 students, we can all think about the sphere of influence that we have with students and the ways that we can, Im that we can adopt some of the principles that Andrea and, and Marilyn that you've talked about, being explicit, being honoring, honoring um, creating pathways, creating structures and so on. We can all do that and influence 11 students. Um, then that graduation gap doesn't seem so great. And equity is one of the things that we want to be a characteristic that we're proud of at CSU. Oscar, I just want to put a plug in at this point also for a, a program that Oscar and I have worked on over the past four or five years. And uh, with the Student Affairs and Higher Education Master's program, uh, we are, we've created a, a graduate certificate in college access and success programs and it is a 15 credit mm -hmm. course designed yeah. particularly for people who might be interested in going on to get a master's degree but yeah. also people who just want to have a better foundation in college access and success programs yeah. and so I thought I might put that yeah, plug yeah. in because it'll be a full certificate hopefully mm -hmm. by this spring uh, and student affairs and higher education students can actually take this as a an interest area mm -hmm. designate uh, this as an interest area and right, right. so yeah, yeah. So and then there's a new course that you just you just developing you're going to be teaching in the spring <laughs> developing <right>? yes <laughs> hopefully yes we'll be teaching this in the spring and it is a course about post-secondary practice mm -hmm. for college access and success program or success programs yeah, yeah. so looking at effective practices So how are we doing, Juan? Are we doing oh, a good we're job? We're doing pretty good, yeah. 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 Um, I feel like the conversation was really flowing and it's real smooth, so yeah. <coughs> good, good. Well, I, as we start to uh, close the, the podcast, I do want to give some shout-outs, first of all, to uh, John Russell, if you can say more about what John has done as the, the tech person to oh, make yeah. this happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So John was the one that provided the microphones and is uh, recording on his equipment over here. Uh, he'll do some post-production edits and, uh, yeah. 
Uh, John is actually with the Collaborative Student Achievement. He works over for IT support, and uh, he's a great colleague. So he was really cool about setting all this up. And I want to give a shout out to Rachel McKinney from the LVPD for creating the documents and making all this happen. So, so thank you, thank you. Uh, as we start to wrap up, I do want to convey my wishes too. Is that um, I want to thank the First Generation University Initiative for all their uh, great work to uh, build a foundation for the next steps and what those might be. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I have full faith in the committee, but also in one of his leaders, which is uh, Shannon, and uh, who will be taking over a lot of these tasks. I have full faith that you're going to bring in uh, some fresh energy. And, and uh, so, if you think about how the initiative is laid out in, in this wonderful handout, there are four subcommittees that folks can be engaged in, and uh, whether it is uh, research or and. Um, creating opportunities for students or communications or how do we engage faculty is going to be an awesome endeavor. Um, so any any last words as we start to wrap up? Do we have opportunity for comment from the Sure, audience? we sure do. Yeah, yeah. Any questions uh, to any of us? Yes. a question around the idea that some of the oh thank you yeah um as we started to frame the language around first generation i've noticed that some students are confused whether they are first generation or not and i think that's especially true when we they started um thinking about step families or if you didn't have like parents and you had like other family members um if you had family members or parents that went back to college if you had a family member that had a two-year degree but not a four-year degree, I'm sure you've had all of these types of questions. So I'm just wondering through your research and practice how you've sort of worked with students to understand that part about themselves. I know that when we started with the First Generation Award back in 1984, nobody knew what First Generation was. And so in the application, we would describe it and then ask students to reflect on their own and, and the extent to which their, their experience matched. These days, a lot of students understand what it means, and a lot still do not. And, and I think it depends on our purposes. I, th I think where we have a program um, and there's an eligibility criterion, then, then it's pretty strictly defined oftentimes. <coughs> um, and when we're outside of that program, then I, then I would like to think that we're talking about the first generation experience. And people can evaluate what, how their experience matches that. Um, when you gave that uh, e example, my, my dad over, went to night school for 12 years and eventually got a degree. So I guess, you know, I'm no longer first generation. Um, um, but on the other hand, my experience growing up was absolutely one of a first generation student. And so in terms of experience, that's all that matters. When it when it comes to particular programs and we have more rigid criteria, then I think we need to be a, a little bit uh, um, uh, more rigid. Two, two things I just wanted to say that more and more high schools are introducing first generation mm -hmm. clubs, organizations, so that we have more students who are coming here mm -hmm. who have had that, that definition mm -hmm. and the opportunity to participate with peers 
at their high school. So I think that's a very positive move. Mm -hmm. The other thing is there's, there's, there's been some research about just the idea. Paul said, well, maybe he's not no longer first generation. I had an experience personally. I had a college degree, I had a master's degree, I was working on my doctorate, and I had a son apply to a private college. I had no experience with that at all, <laughs> honestly. I, I went to public schools and, you know, in California, and I had to get help mm. from someone to show me how to fill out the financial aid form for a private school. I mean, I was still, in some ways, first generation. Yes. So sometimes parts of those never leave you yeah. and we have we've had conversations yes. about imposter yeah, syndrome right. yes. all the yeah. time yeah. being on a right. panel like what am i doing here i don't yeah. have the expertise yeah and well into later life <laughs> yes, exactly so uh so you know so yeah. i mean i think those are all experiences mm -hmm. that we have and so i think if you can work with students to mm -hmm. help think about did they really have assistance or not mm -hmm. right then i think yes. that makes it right. uh you know a student might be first generation I just want to follow up a little bit on that. Um, first of all, the legacy of the folks on the panel around first-generation status and access is rich and deep and broad and profound. Um, and we're going to keep working. So I, I do want to provide <laughs> a little reassurance that it's not going to fall flat on its face, um, <laughs> or at least I'm going to do my level best to make sure that doesn't happen with lot, the work of a lots, of lots of folks. But I want to talk about the centering. So Paul talked a lot about centering the first generation experience. So I think the, the impact of your question changes if we center what is best for the student and not what is best for us if we center how we approach students in a way that explains things which is just good pedagogy no matter who we're talking to um, I think that the whole conversation shifts so I'm I'm borrowing a title but if we truly become a student ready university the, the book is student ready college if we truly do that then the first generation the technicality of whether or not you are a first-generation student, not to take anything away from that identity, but the level of service that we provide mm -hmm. will be there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's truly the goal. What has been my experience is that as, as when we talk about it broadly and then we talk about celebration, I think the, a, a more uh, open definition works well. I think as we get into money and resources and who gets what, that's when we need to be clearly defined because we need to be good shepherds of the money, good stewards of resources that we work so hard to get for first-gen students. And if we don't find ways to protect that, then it can be taken away if we don't define it well. So that will be my cautionary tale for, for that, yeah. Other other questions? Thank you. Um, so I was a long time trio professional with the Educational Talent Search Program. 
And when students come to CSU, I felt a sense of relief um, because I knew they were coming into a place that really cared for them um, and had a lot, a lot of resources for them, had the key communities they can take a part of or the bridge program, whatever programs we offered. C4E. C4E. Um, what about our other institutions around the state? Have you had any conversations or how are they... Um, how are they working with students, with our uh, first-gen students? Do you, do you see them also uh, focusing some efforts to help the success of this population? Yeah, who wants to take that one? I, 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 think, I think there's such a variance because I still get calls from some fellow TRIO directors that say, that even on their admissions application that it isn't an option for students to identify as being first gen. So you have situations like that and then you do have other institutions that are starting to um, develop their own first gen scholarships and programs for their students because I think institutions are recognizing that more and more students um, who are coming at to, into their institutions identify as being first gen and how do you prepare mm -hmm. for them and support them because of their unique situations and challenges mm -hmm. as well as assets. So you know I'm encouraged by I've been doing some work with some of the two-year schools in the state and I'm encouraged by the uh, the two-year colleges really taking on some new initiatives around first generation many of them are applying for student support services programs, mm -hmm. which can act as a model for the institution in many cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that uh, there's one, one two-year school, particularly in the, the Denver area, that has developed a first-gen scholarship program. Yeah. But they are not a complete wraparound program, mm -hmm. and so they refer and collaborate with the student support services to make sure that they're getting the support, but they do have money and scholarships available for first-generation students. So mm -hmm. I, I'm encouraged by that. I think mm -hmm. that it's growing, and I think the more that there's discussion and language and that uh, the, uh, the institutions in Colorado are going to be leaders mm -hmm. in this area. You know, I, I think more and more institutions are adopting language, a program, a club, a scholarship. Um, internally, you know, we're, we're self-critical and we think about where we need to go next. But the other side of that is what I think is exceptional about CSU is that it has really become in so many ways a fabric of our identity. Um, we, we've been tracking, as Marilyn said, we've been tracking first-generation students since 1984. We put it on the application. Some institutions still haven't done that, but we know lots about first-generation students over a period of decades. Um, there's no analysis that we do in institutional research these days, and we have such an incredible IR operation here that we can be so grateful for. There's no analysis that they do that doesn't include first-generation as a factor, uh, being of color as a factor, income as a factor, um, residency, gender, and so on. We do that reflexively. We've got a whole range of programs um, that are that literally are designed with uh, first-generation low-income students in, in mind, uh, students of color. Um, we've mentioned key C4E, of course, the TRIO programs, um, SDPS services for DACA students, DACA asset students for 
fostering success students. We've got such a range of things. We've got a, we've got a first generation undergraduate initiative um, with lots of active faculty involved. The, the many levels at which we're operating at CSU, even though you know, looking across the room at how much you're already contributing, how much more we wish we could do, when we compare ourselves to other institutions, we can be pretty dang proud. I may yeah. be speaking kind of with a bias a little bit, uh, coming from different TRIO programs and uh, different institutions as well. Uh, if you really want to gauge how well an institution is reaching out to first-generation students, look at its TRIO programs. How, are, how well ingrained are those TRIO programs with the institution? I feel CSU does a really good job, not only with the TRIO programs, but outreaching to first-generation students. Um, I'm impressed with uh, the various institutions I've served. Uh, CSU does the most outreach and the most it can to help first-generation students. And I've worked for several institutions, and I'm, I'm by far I'm impressed with how this institution has worked. I agree. From the very beginning, when students are admitted, I know there are some phone calls that go out to welcome them. Yeah. We do that. Mm -hmm. And then at, um, it's one of the sessions for um, RAM orientation, that there is a first-generation uh, student and parent, student and family um, session. Of course, it's 7.30 in the morning, and those are the ones that we used to do <laughs> for the AAC, mm -hmm. but it is, um, it is such a gift to be here mm -hmm. and, to be, and, and right. feeling so proud of what we are because we truly are the pioneer leading. Yeah. Leading this. Yeah. So I think it was you, Paul, that mentioned that we've been collecting first-gen data from students, but we have very little idea who our faculty staff who are first-gen. And uh, so we are about to send out something to all the employee groups asking them to identify if they wish to as first-gen so that can be connected to their employee record so we can have that. Uh, some technical issues, but if it's a darn thing, the last thing I do before I retire, <laughs> that will be it. So we're hoping to get that out next week so that we can start knowing all across the university who is first-gen faculty and staff and ask them to be part of this great uh, initiative. So, good. Well, I think we're almost out of time. Juan, um, how, um, oh, I guess Another we have question? time for one more question, yes. If we, Was there a question? Yeah. I guess so. Okay. Was, was there a question in the back? I can bring the microphone over to you. Hi, Connie. Connie. Thank you so much, and I'm so sorry to be late. Um, I'm thinking a little bit about Shannon and transition too, and so as you are transitioning your professional careers, I wonder what, and I'm thinking about Tony's retirement too, what is the mistake that CSU is most likely to make as it relates to this work, and what cautions would you have for those of us that hope to continue this work on um, for decades to come? Um, what are we most likely to fall prey to, and how do we guard against that as it relates to these activities? And remember, we got three minutes left, you all. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, Ryan, you always ask hard questions. <laughs> I, I, I would say, you know, if we lose our self-consciousness about it, you know, I, I think it's so easy to say, you know, CSU's got such a good reputation. We've got lots of history and programs um, and just maintaining. If we were to just maintain, we will not grow in the ways that we need to. Um, I think there's little chance of that when I look at people across the room. Uh, but I th that's uh, the hazard that I would, would worry about. Um, 
For me is is uh, I fear that we would talk a lot and and do a lot of reports and research and <laughs> podcasts and <laughs> without. Nice I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but this but this is a call to action, and that's my point. Is that it's got to lead to action. Right, and there's a lot of places where we might not have the staffing or the resources or the will to try new things because all of our experience has been either with TRIO programs or with other, but the new frontier in my mind is um, what's happening at the colleges, at the departments, at the places where first-gen students are still being isolated or not being thought about. And there is and I can say that I couldn't offer proven practices that the economics department or engineering could do other than do something, try it out. And then if it doesn't work, then try something, right? Uh, I, I brought the, the first town search grant proposal that Paul wrote in 1988, <laughs> 87, and it got funded, and that's why I was hired. So my initiation <laughs> was... Read that <laughs> and make it happen, right? And it's well written, and it's got letters of support. It it's got objectives. It has this whole thing that lays it out. But there it's was the nothing. First proposal we wrote with a computer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond the numbers and and the objectives and the numbers, there was nothing that said, Oscar, this is how you go to Lesher Middle School and do it and be able to be successful. This doesn't say how you go to Fort Morgan High School and talk to the staff and to the, and to <laughs> the principal. All that we had to do on our own. All that was uh, either getting kicked out of a school because they didn't like the, what we were doing, but it was a lot of trial and error, trial and error, and so I had to make it happen because we had to meet the objectives. So my fear is that we will not do things. So that's my, yeah, let's do stuff. A bias for action. Yeah. So I guess I would, I'm concerned about resting on your laurels. I mean, I think CSU is recognized today as a leader in this area, but there are other people, NASPA is on the move, right? NASPA has this institute yeah. for first generation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's really important that CSU continue to be collaborative with other movements that are going on across the country. I think it's important to have a fabulous programs here, to be thinking about new initiatives, but I think we also want to make sure that we're being as collaborative as possible uh, with other institutions in Colorado and with other national movements around first generation so yeah. that it's really a collective kind of movement. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure we need structures and programs, but in the end one of the measures would be the extent to which every single faculty member in every class, every single person working in the residence halls, in the cafeterias, across the campus, every person feels a part of this and is working as hard as they can to be sure and include ev every student of every identity. That ultimately is the measure. It is not programs. It is the embedding of the, of the consciousness throughout the campus. Marlene? I think you said it all. I said it all. Okay, it's uh, past our time. So, Juan, uh, how can we get access to this? Can you talk about that again? Absolutely. So you can listen to the podcast, which will be available later this weekend. Uh, I'm projecting Sunday 
After All Pros Production. Uh, again, that's juanrivas.podbean.com. You can subscribe uh, to our feed, and it'll update on your either Apple Podcast or whatever podcast uh, app you use. It should update automatically. Um, but if you subscribe there, that would also help us out a lot for the podcast. Uh, we're still trying to get a lot of subscribers, so yeah, 200 is not too bad. I'd like to hit 500, if possible. Okay. That'd be great. Yeah, so then when we were at the plaza a few weeks ago, if somebody did an interview and told their story, they got one of those cool shirts. Yeah. So I think we can open that up again. So if anybody wants to share the story. Oh yeah, if you can, if you want to share your story, come by. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, you can get 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 yeah. That looks good, Paul. That looks good. Yeah. I guess yeah. I have one final comment, and and. I know that um, you know we are all professionals here, uh, and and I, I really value our student voice, our student perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so, as we think about moving forward, what do our first generation students really want? Right. What would they value? What's important for them? Yeah. And and being open to also include their um, ideas and perspectives. A perfect way to end it. Yeah. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview. What a great conversation these panelists have brought forward talking about first-generation students. I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on that conversation. And again, they provided so much content, so much information. I'm really, truly grateful to be to have been part of the entire experience uh, and to be part of that all-star panel that we're able to talk not only about TRIO, but the, the whole first-generation movement and what that means to students, especially as they... Uh, navigate the whole uh, college experience. So again, thank you to Dr. Paul Thayer, Marilyn Thayer, uh, Dr. Oscar Felix, and Andrea Reeve for being part of the panel. Uh, Dr. Oscar Felix, a, a huge shout out to you for the collaboration. It was such an amazing experience working with you. Uh, and if you have not checked out his uh, interview uh, with just Dr. Oscar Felix, you should go ahead and uh, after you're done with this podcast, Go back to the Let's Talk Trio homepage and listen to his podcast. It's, again, phenomenal story that he has to share. So the podcast will be taking a break uh, during the winter break. We do have an interview lined up, but that's more of a surprise as kind of a, a thank you to our listeners for continuing to listen to Let's Talk Trio. Uh, this guest, very special, uh, very, we have, all I can give you is a, a little bit of a clue. We have New Mexico roots and she's going to be on, on Let's Talk Trio. Um, she, she's a colleague here at Colorado State University, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing her story with you all. Again, if you want to be featured on Let's Talk Trio, you may get a hold of me. My email is juanrivas583 at yahoo.com. You may also message me directly via Facebook at Let's Talk Trio using the search bar on Facebook. This episode of the podcast was sponsored by the Vice President for Diversity at Colorado State University. You have all been an amazing audience. Thank you all so much again for 
allowing this podcast to be part of your life, allowing it to be part of your routine, uh, whether you listen to it once a week uh, or you binge listen, um, it doesn't matter, right? So long as you're able to hear this podcast and hear what this uh, Let's Talk Trio uh, thing is all about. I wanted to make a quick acknowledgement to the Let's Talk Trio staff. So myself, Juan Rivas, the executive producer and host, welcoming new member Amelia Castañeda as our producer, John Russell as our audio specialist and tech advisor, and finally, our advisors, Roderick Chambers and Scott Kendall. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.